We got any other 90s kids in the room? Got a few, not too excited. So, so when, when, when you're a child of the 90s, here's what you got to understand. This is pre-YouTube, pre-YouTube TV, pre-DVR and streaming. Uh, so there was one sacred hour when you're a kid growing up in the 90s. It was Saturday morning because Saturday morning you got to what? You got to watch cartoons until your eyes bled. And that was a tradition in my home. My home was pretty low tech. We only had one TV. We did not have cable. We had the old school antennas with some tinfoil, you know, connecting the two. And my parents would let me watch all the cartoons I could handle on Saturday morning. It was a big deal. And my favorite cartoon was called G.I. Joe. Anybody remember G.I. Joe? They were action figures. They turned it into a cartoon. G.I. Joes are known as what? Real American heroes. And here's what's amazing about G.I. Joe. They would always save the day in each and every episode. But you'd get to the end, and they felt the need, after the episode was over, to educate you on something. They had this little life-teachable moment at the very end of every episode. Do you all remember this? And so, for example, a G.I. Joe might teach you that, you know, drugs are bad or that you need to recycle your plastic bottles. I, re I remember one specific episode where there were some little kids and, and, and they had found a transformer that fell over and there was live wires just shooting sparks up everywhere. And so the little kids, they see it and they think to themselves, we should go play over here. And then a G.I. Joe shows up on the scene and basically tells them, if you touch the sparks, you touch the wires, you're going to get electrocuted. Okay. And here's how every one of these educational segments ended. The kids would look at the G.I. Joe and they would say, what? Now we know, and the G.I. Joe would repeat, and knowing is half the battle. Y'all remember this? Now we know, and knowing is half the battle. And we often take the same mindset to the Christian life that knowing is half the battle. So, so we, are, we observe an area in our life that we need to improve in. We identify a character flaw, and so we buy the book, we download the podcast, we watch the sermon on that topic, and we think, I'm halfway there. I know the right thing to do, now I just got to go do it. But here's the thing, how's that working out for you and me? Because when we think about it, there's a big difference between knowing what's right and actually doing what's right. You with me? And ultimately, where Scripture is pointing us, especially in this passage in Ephesians, is not just doing the right thing, but actually wanting to do the right thing. And there's a big difference. And especially when it comes to the topic of this morning, we're going to talk about lying, we're going to talk about being sinfully angry, and being bitter. Okay, let, let me do a little survey. I know we got some very wise, you know, Bible scholars in the room today. So I just mentioned three, you know, behaviors, lying, sinful anger, and bitterness. Let me just pull the audience. Are those things right or wrong? Give me a response. They are? They're wrong. Okay, good. All right, I get to preach the sermon I prepared for, Okay. So we know they're wrong, and yet what? We continue to do them each and every week. And so actually, if you, if you were to talk to like a psychologist or somebody who's expert in human behavior, they would say that knowing is not half the battle. Knowing is not 50%. They would say knowing is only 10% of the battle. There's a lot of things that we know that we don't do, and knowing is not enough to change something. And strictly having the information, it rarely leads to transformation. L let me give you one example from my very own testimony, and this is actually pretty funny to think about. Uh, I went to school in Birmingham, Alabama at Sanford University, 
Uh, my first two years, I did the typical college party scene, a lot of rule breaking, a lot of partying, a lot of just, just, just going wild. And then my junior year, I was hanging out with some older guys and I made this observation. At some point, before you graduate, you got to boost your GPA, you got to get some, things, some extracurriculars to go on the resume, you got to find a good girl so that you can graduate, get a job, and be successful. And I thought to myself, why not wait till I'm a senior? Let's do it as a junior, okay? I'm a step ahead. I'm a year ahead. And so I just decided a good moral thing to do would be to join a Bible study. And so there was a guy who was in a fraternity. And so there was a guy leading a Bible study in our fraternity chapter room. And believe it or not, he was using a book called The Mortification of Sin, okay? Now, I've, wor- I've worked on a college campus for 15 years leading Bible studies and evangelizing. And if you came to me, I know we got some frat guys in the back, and said, Ben, I'm starting a fraternity Bible study. I'm thinking about using this book, The Mortification of Sin. I could give you 100 books to be used before that, okay? It might be one of the worst decisions you could ever make because it was written in the 1600s by a Puritan. This means Old English, like King James Version, but that's what this guy was using, okay? And I just thought to myself, well, I'm trying to improve my character. I'm trying to change my behavior. I might as well join this Bible study. And you know what? The Lord actually used it, okay, in his perfect providence to actually change, save me. Because it was as we were reading this book, okay, I started to realize that I couldn't just through hard work and determination change my behavior. I couldn't change my lifestyle. Because what this author was saying in this book is that you have to look to Jesus on the cross, And that the gospel has to move from your head to your heart. You've got to work it deeply into your soul if you're ever going to change. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How do I put off the old self? How do I put on the new self? Particularly when it comes to these three sins. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I know it's wrong to lie, but I just can't stop exaggerating. Or I know it's sinful to be angry, but I just always lose my temper in this situation. Or I have this one relationship and I experience a daily bitterness, if you know these things are wrong and you can't seem to change, this passage is for you. So we're going to start in Ephesians 4. We're going to read verse 25 through 31. If you could, just read along with me. I think it's going to be on the screen. It says this in verse 25. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry. Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. I'm going to fast forward to verse 31. It says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. So we're going to look at these three issues, these three sins, and we're going to replace the lie with the truth. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 25. We're going to talk about replacing lies with truth. And Andrew already hit this pretty well last week. We're going to touch on just a few things. But we see right here in verse 25, it's not enough to just avoid lies. We're called by God to pursue truth. Now remember this. Who does Jesus call the father of lies? Okay, Satan. Okay, don't say Jesus in this scenario, okay? Satan or the serpent. And so when we lie, when we stretch the truth, think about it this way. Instead of being formed into Jesus Christ, we're being deformed into the serpents, into Satan. 
You think about the, about the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis 3, when the serpent first shows up on the scene. He goes to war. He attacks Adam and Eve. Now think about this. The serpent is able to start a cosmic spiritual war. And what is the weapon that he uses? Does he use a bomb? Does he use a plane? Does he use a gun? What type of weapon does Satan use? He uses what? He uses one single lie. And the same lie that he spoke to Adam and Eve is the same lie that he repeats day in and day out to you and me. We hear it today. And the lie is this, is that you can find satisfaction and happiness apart from God. And you know what? About 10 years ago, I told you I'm from the 90s, okay? We had such hope with the rise of Wi-Fi and the internet and the age of technology. And we thought to ourselves, what? We'll finally get the truth out. Everybody will finally have the right information. But what spreads the most on the internet? It's what? Misinformation. Half-truths. I mean, just think about your social media you know, feed. Did y'all see that study that came out? That the 20 most popular Facebook pages directed towards American Christians, do y'all remember this? 19 of them were controlled by European bot farms, okay? If you don't know what that means, ask your grandkids, okay? I mean, think about this. I mean, how many times has Morgan Freeman died this past year? It's like every three months, and it goes viral, right? In case you're wondering, Morgan Freeman is alive and well. He's doing well. But this lying, this deception, it's not restricted to like YouTube conspiracy theorists. It's not just politicians in Washington, D.C. If we were to analyze our speech and what we say, if I get gut level honest, my speech is full of half-truths and exaggeration and little white lies. I'm more like the serpent, okay, than I would like to admit. And here's what we got to remember about lying. We don't just lie to lie, do we? Anytime we lie, just like my three-year-old son, we lie to gain an advantage, I want another popsicle, or to avoid a consequence. I don't want to go to bed. So think about it this way. We've got a couple different categories in the church today. We've got some students, high school students, college students. Okay, where are we tempted to lie the most? I know some of you guys are like intramural all-stars. You want to lie about your 40 time. Okay, we tend to round down. Some of you lie about your GPA, your ACT, you round up. But most of you cheat, okay? Most of you cheat. And why do we cheat? Because we want to gain something, a better score. Or we want to avoid something like hard work or the anxiety or pressure of not knowing what I'm going to get. Pastors, you know, pastors lie. Okay, we don't call it cheating. We call it plagiarizing. Because it's a really unique job like being a pastor and actually like preaching in front of a couple hundred people. And everybody, you know, has an opinion. Okay, so believe it or not... I preached a couple weeks ago, and somebody, we're not going to name names, came up to me and said, hey, Ben, that was a pretty good sermon. It was almost as good as your last one. You know, you get like these backhanded insults. I think it was a compliment. I'm not really sure. I remember last year, you know, somebody was trying to be nice and encouraging. They say, hey, Ben, that was a pretty good sermon. Not quite as good as John Piper. Okay, I want to look at this guy. He was like an engineer. He worked with computers. And I, and I wanted to say, you know what? You're not as good as Bill Gates, Okay. It's just a weird job. We, can, we get compared to our last sermon or the greatest, some of the greatest teachers in the world. But just like you, okay, I want to be looked at as someone who's intelligent and articulate, and I want you to think I'm good at preaching. But we all lie. We all falsely represent ourselves. We want to elevate our backgrounds, 
our responsibility, and our significance. Because deep down in our heart of hearts, we all have the same quiet fear. That if people knew me, if my spouse knew me, really knew me, if my teammates or my friends or my employees really knew me, okay, they, they wouldn't want to work for me. They wouldn't want to be my friend. They wouldn't want to be my spouse. So we have this desire to want to appear better and to increase our importance. And so Paul explains why we shouldn't lie, why we should speak the truth. And he says we're all members. And Henley explained this last week. But the membership is not, we're not part of the same country club. We don't shop at the same Costco. We don't attend the same gym. We're members of the same body. And what happens when one part of your body lies to another? Your body can't perform its function. It doesn't operate well. And so if we're going to have trust in this body, it's got to be built on truth. Okay, so first, we have to replace the lies with the truth. Ready to move on to point number two? Now we're getting to anger. This is where we're really going to camp out. Because we're called by God to replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Did you pick up on the command here? This is in verse 26. It says, be what? Be, do you remember? I think we have it on the next slide. It says what? Be what? Be angry. Ooh, is anybody excited about this one? You're like, you know, I can finally, you know, tell my husband that shirt makes him look blank. You know, I can finally be honest about how this meal tastes, okay? I can be angry. I can be a truth teller. But do you see this? There's a command that actually says it is our duty, it is our responsibility at times to be angry. In other words, there are certain situations where it would be wrong and disobedient not to be angry. That's pretty interesting. Now, now anger isn't very popular in Christian circles. Think about this. You might be in a Bible study, some sort of accountability group. We confess all different types of negative emotions. You might come into your group and say, I'm really worried. I'm pretty stressed. I'm overwhelmed. I'm anxious. I might even say I'm, I'm depressed. But can you imagine going to a group and saying, guys, I'm really angry right now. They'd be like, you might need to get checked out. All right, you shouldn't be so upset because we believe that sometimes we believe that being a Christian means I'm a nice person and I can never be angry. And this is how our culture approaches anger. One of two ways, two opposite extremes, if you will. We either blow up or we tend to bottle it up. You get that? We blow up. This is when you just say, I I need to vent. Anybody got that friend? They call you up and they just say, I need to vent. Okay. And you just set the phone aside, and they just blow up for about five minutes. But this is anger directed outside, directed outward. Or we tend to bottle it up, and this is the good Christian way, right? Where we keep it in, we try to control it, and this is just anger directed inward. Oftentimes we say things like, I just got to pray it away. God, would you please take away my anger? And yet, Paul commands us to be what? To be angry. This means, Scripture is saying, it is required not to suppress your anger. Because here's the reason. You might have grown up in an environment, in a family that believed good Christians don't get angry. What's the problem with that thinking? Well, does God get angry? He does. And God's holy and perfect and righteous. He can't sin, and yet He gets angry. Let me show you. I'm going to give you two verses right here. The first is in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. 
says right here, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Let me just say this real quick. Okay, the Bible is actually more nuanced in its treatment on anger, and the Bible would say there's two types of anger. There's righteous anger, and there's unrighteous or sinful anger. One pastor, Tim Keller, defines it this way. Righteous anger or biblical anger, it defends what's good and attacks what's bad. Did you get that? Righteous anger, the anger that Paul's describing, it attacks what is bad and defends what's good. So where do we see this in Psalm 119? We see hot indignation. That's real anger. What makes God angry? Well, he is defending his law, which is his word and his scripture, and he's attacking what's bad. And what is he attacking? It's wickedness. It's evil. So do we see this? God demonstrates righteous anger. What about Jesus? We're going to look at one popular story right here. This comes from Mark 3. Give you a little bit of the background. Jesus on the Sabbath interacts with a man who has a deformed or, or a, a deformed hand. It's a withered hand. It says right here in Mark 3, 5, this is Jesus. He looked around at them with anger. He grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and he was healed. Okay? And so, more, so what's going on in this story is that there was a group of Pharisees or religious elite who were trying to trap Jesus. And they lay a trap by having a man with a deformed hand, and they want to see, does Jesus heal, or does he work, does he do miracles on the Sabbath? And do you see, this makes Jesus angry. He looks at the Pharisees with anger. Why? Because he's defending what's good. And what is he defending? A vulnerable man with a serious disability. He's also defending the goodness of the Sabbath, a day that is sacred for rest and experiencing the grace of God. And then Jesus attacks what's bad. He attacks the sickness in this man's hand, but he also attacks the self-righteousness in the hearts of the Pharisees. This is righteous anger. So let's just summarize it this way. What makes God angry? Injustice and cruelty and hypocrisy. Bottom line, sin stirs the wrath of God. And so if we're made in the image of God, and if we're being formed into the image of God, we, as the people of God, need to have more righteous anger and less sinful anger. Because God hates sin, and therefore what? We should too. And if we love God, shouldn't we hate wickedness? But so often, how do we relate to evil and wickedness? We compromise. We get complacent. We witness sinful things, and we shrug our shoulders, and we say this, well, that's somebody else's problem. Now, remember this, okay? And this is hard for us to understand. But the opposite of love is not anger or hate. It's actually apathy or indifference. The opposite of love, it's not anger. It's not hate. In fact, love often leads to hate. Love often leads to anger. Think about this. We might have some diehard dogs fans in the room, okay? And so if I love UGA Bulldogs, by default, I hate the War Eagles. I hate the Yellow Jackets. Not as much, okay? Do you see what I'm saying? My love leads me to hate. You might have a favorite vacation spot or like a beautiful nature scene. You go to this lake. You go to this trail. You go to this beach, and because you love this destination or this view, you hate the, the pollution and the litter that's covering it. Uh, you might have a family member that is, that is an addict and controlled by drugs, 
And because you love your son, you love your uncle, you love this family member, you hate the addiction. You might have a spouse that's undergoing chemotherapy. And because you love your spouse, you hate the terminal disease. Do you see this? And so what do we see in our church today? There's not enough righteous anger. And there's too much sinful anger. So let's think just for a moment, when is the last time you got angry? Okay, think just for a moment, when is the last time you got angry? Okay, I don't have to go too far back. I don't have to think back like decades, years, or even months, okay? I can go back to Friday night. Here's what happened. Friday night, you know, we're we're kicking things off at West Georgia. We got football players who are back. I did a three-day orientation while I was teaching and training. Friday night comes along, I'm ready to chill, to kick my feet up. So I got my drinks, I got my snacks, I got some sort of like Navy SEAL sniper movie, you know, queued up and ready to go. I got the kids down, and Jake decides, tonight's the night, I'm not sleeping, okay? I'm not sleeping. And so guess what happened? In this moment, remember, righteous anger defends what's good and attacks what's bad, And I got angry, and instead of defending what was good, I defended my comforts, my agenda, my time to chill and to kick my feet up. And what did I attack? Not as disobedience, not as rebellion, okay, not as insensitivity. Instead, what I attacked was my actual son. This is sinful anger. So here was what I encourage you to do is just think for a moment. This could be your conversation over lunch. This could be what you journal and meditate on. But think about your own life. Okay, where do I need less sinful anger and where do I need more righteous anger? Okay, great application, great thing to consider. Where do I need less sinful anger and where do I need more righteous anger? So let me give you two practical tips when it comes to anger and then we'll move on to forgiveness. But Paul says two things, two little qualifiers. First, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Does this mean literally never be angry at dark? What's he saying? Okay, and I'll be honest, early in marriage, I misapplied this verse, okay, because I misunderstood it. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say don't let the sun go down on your dispute or your disagreement, okay? Lee and I might be unique, but very, you know, not very often, but occasionally, <laughs> okay, we, we, we get in little heated debates, okay? You might call them fights. We just don't see eye to eye, right? And sometimes we get a little passionate. We get fired up. But I remember some nights, just because I've got the inner lawyer, and I've got a little more endurance than Leah, we would get in a disagreement, and we'd be lying in the same bed. Can anybody identify with this? Okay? And I was like, don't let the sun go down in my anger. So it'd be one in the morning. We'd have like one eye open, staring at the ceiling. We can barely put two words together. But I'm like, because I'm not going to let the sun go down in my anger, I got to win this debate. I got to win this discussion. That's not what Paul's talking about right here. He's saying this, don't let the sun go down on your anger, even if you're not resolved, even if you don't see eye to eye, even if you haven't hashed it out, be quick to apologize, because when you stay angered, they're like smoldering embers, and eventually it leads to the fire of bitterness, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Okay, and Paul gives one final qualifier, and he says, don't stay angry, because it gives an opportunity, some versions say, a foothold for the devil. And here's what Paul is saying. It's easier to sin when you're angry. You guys agree with that? It's easier to sin when you're angry. And Paul says this is a great opportunity. 
Have you ever been presented with a great opportunity, like something you can't say no to? Okay, literally, I had an old college buddy call me up six weeks ago. He said, Ben, I'd like to pay for you to go to Wyoming and fly fish for a week. I said, absolutely, I'm in. Don't have to pray and fast about this one, okay? I'm in. (laughs) But maybe somebody offers you an opportunity with like a, a free ticket to a ball game or a concert, Or you go to Robinson Salvage, and the deal is just so good, you can't pass up the opportunity. This is how Satan views angry men and women. He says, I can't pass it up. I can't say no. See, when we're angry, it's easier to sin. See, Satan knows the fine line between righteous and unrighteous anger. And he wants to use our anger to break relationships. This is why James 119, this is a good summary of this point. James says this, Be quick to hear, slow to anger, slow to speak, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So let's move to our final point. We've talked about telling the truth. We've talked about replacing sinful anger with righteous anger. And then final point, we've got to replace bitterness with forgiveness. What is bitterness? The word bitter, it literally means sour or spoiled. Okay, think about that that moldy bread. Think about that sour milk in the back of your refrigerator. It's when our spirit and our speech is spoiled. See, bitterness, it's like a settled hatred or animosity for someone. It's when we start to hope for their harm or their distress. So God is angry, yes. Is God ever bitter? No. See, anger says that this is wrong, this is evil, this is wicked, and it needs to stop. Bitterness is different. Bitterness desires to see somebody brought down, to lose their job, to be hurt, or to fail. And Paul says this, there's all types of bitterness. Let's go to verse 31. He says, all bitterness. And the word all means every type, every kind. I'm not the most cultured guy. If you hang out with people who are very cultured, like wine connoisseurs, you might say, I want a glass of red wine. And they say, red wine? There's so many types or kinds. There's all kinds of red wine. There's Merlot and Cabernet and blends, etc. And Paul is like an anger connoisseur. He's saying there's all types of bitterness. There's all types of anger. Some are internal, like wrath. Wrath is just a passionate rage. Some are external. Do you see this word clamor? That's brawling. That's raising your voice. It's shouting, screaming. There's also slander. It's when you speak evil of someone, you talk behind their back, you try to destroy their reputation. And the final type of bitterness he describes is malice. That's just plotting against somebody. It's having ill will or evil intentions. And Paul says we've got to replace bitterness with forgiveness. He says we need to be kind, we need to be tender, and we need to forgive. So here's what we tend to think about forgiveness, and this is where we'll wrap things up. We tend to think this, forgiveness is primarily a feeling. So it's like this moment of zen. It's a serenity, or it's a peace that just washes over us. And we also tend to think forgiveness is just a decision you make one time. I chose to forgive this person. I decided to forgive my absentee father. But the Bible describes something different. See, the Bible would say this, forgiveness, it's a pattern. It's a lifestyle, it's a daily decision, and forgiveness often is granted before it's felt, okay? Tim Keller says that forgiveness is granted before it's felt. 
So think about Jesus and the forgiveness that he extends your way. It was once and for all. It was decisive. It was past, present, and future. It covered all those sins. And here's how we define forgiveness. Forgiveness is simply canceling a debt by paying it yourself. Okay, forgiveness defined is canceling a debt by paying it yourself. So think about it this way, okay? If you break something, okay? About a year ago, I was helping somebody move. So when you're like under the age of 40 and you have a truck, a lot of times people call you to help them move, okay? So somebody was moving in and I was helping them move. If you ever asked me to move, put me in charge of like the old couch, the refrigerator, like the heavy stuff, okay? Not the fragile stuff. I don't do well with that. I'm like a typical man. How many boxes can I take in at once? Okay, so I had this, this top box. It even said fragile with the Sharpie marker, and it slid off the top. Unbeknownst to me, it was like a crystal punch bowl, okay? Highly breakable, highly fragile, and it turned to dust, okay? It was destroyed. It was shattered, okay? And so here's the thing. The, the, this homeowner, this person who was moving, they forgave me, but guess what? Somebody had to pay the price, Somebody had to pay the cost, because this is Carrollton, Georgia, and a crystal punch bowl is an essential, right? You got to have one. You can't live without one. It's a necessity for your social life. And so it came at a cost, okay? Who knew crystal punch bowls cost that much money, okay? And so we often break things, and usually it doesn't involve money. Think about the ways people have offended you, hurt you, and harmed you. But it costs you something. Maybe it costs you peace of mind, it cost you your happiness, could have cost you a relationship, or even your reputation. About a year ago, there was somebody uh, in our network, in our community, who said something that did real damage to my reputation. And in that moment, I had a choice. I'd ask the question, who's going to pay? And maybe I can pay them back. I'm going to voice criticism. I'm going to ruin them, or I'm going to forgive them, which means I'm going to refuse the payback, and I'm going to absorb the cost. But with forgiveness, there's always a debt. Forgiveness is always, always extremely costly. Someone's going to suffer. Either you suffer or the offender suffers. And just to wrap everything up, to bring it together, isn't this so often why we lie? Isn't this so often what motivates our sinful anger and why we embrace bitterness? Is because we're trying to exact payment. We're trying to pay somebody back because we refuse, we're unwilling to forgive them. So I think you know where I'm going. But on the cross, God what? God forgives us. And there's never forgiveness without payment. There never can be forgiveness without suffering. This is why if there's no nails and thorns and sweat and blood and cross, there would never be forgiveness. And think about who, think about who suffered, who absorbed the cost. It was Jesus. The only individual who always told the truth was never sinfully angry always kind, never bitter, and yet on the cross, what did he receive? The full anger, the full wrath of a righteous God. See, God is only able to forgive you and me because Jesus suffered in our place. See, we're unlike Jesus. We lie, we get angry, we're bitter, and yet Jesus forgives. And his forgiveness was not a one-time decision, was it? It's not just something in the past. Because we keep on lying we continue to get angry, and we embrace bitterness, and Jesus continues to forgive. He even forgives our lack of forgiveness. And isn't this what our culture needs? We live in cancel culture, which means this. 
Maybe somebody becomes a big celebrity. They get drafted and they become a professional athlete. Somebody decides to run for office. And what's the first thing our culture does? They dig deep. They do like a Twitter deep dive. And they find the 10-year-old tweet and they try to ruin this person's life. And so our culture is able to point out sin. Our culture is able to point out evil. But they refuse to pay the price. And this is what we do. We often focus on how somebody has wronged us how they've cost us, how they've held us back. And so here would be my encouragement. I'm going to give you one more application. Just this week, this week, instead of focusing on somebody, how somebody has offended you, how somebody has harmed you, about how, what it's cost you, how about you just focus on this? Give your mind, your heart to meditating on this. How much, um, I want you to focus on what it costs Jesus to forgive you. I want you to ask yourself, what is the price that Jesus paid to forgive you? If you can shift your mind, shift your heart, you can extend forgiveness. So let's wrap it up right here with a quick story that illustrates this. This story comes from 1999. There was a family, the Staines family. They were Aussies, so they were from Australia, and they were missionaries in India. I believe I have a picture of the family right here. So you can see the father on the right. His name is Graham. The mother is on the left. Her name was Gladys. And they started a home for lepers in India. They were Christian missionaries. And so they offered lepers a safe place um, to, to heal. They shared the gospel with them, and they gave them good food. Well, one night, Graham and his two boys, you can see them right here, they were tra traveling to like a remote tribe in East India. And they were getting back. It was very late at night. It was the middle of the night. It was extremely cold, and they knew we're not going to make it home. So here's what they decided to do. They said, we're just going to spend the night in the Jeep. We'll keep warm, we'll wake up, and we'll drive home in the morning. Well, while they were sleeping, there was a group of about 50 rebels who circled this Jeep. In the middle of the night, while they were sleeping, they covered the Jeep in gasoline, lit it on fire, and they watched as Graham and his two boys burned to death. It was tragic. It was awful. The next morning, Gladys and her daughter Esther received the tragic news, and they were obviously torn up. They were emotional, they were grieving, they were lamenting. And at one point, the mother looks at her daughter and she said this. She said this to young Esther. She said, we'll forgive them, won't we? And the young girl looked at her mom and she said, yes, mommy, we will. And so the very next day, mother and daughter, they issued a statement. This is a story that caught national and then international news, and they said this. We're going to stay in India we're going to continue to run the home for lepers, and we have decided to forgive the 50 rebels who ruined our family. And so this story started to circulate all throughout the country. And there was another missionary who was sharing the gospel in a different part of India. And he was going door to door. He had evangelism appointments. He was giving out gospel tracts. And at one point, he strikes up a conversation with a local Indian. And this man looked at the other missionary and said this, is this the same Jesus that Gladys Staines believes in. This other missionary said, yes. And this young Indian man, he said, I want to know this Jesus Christ. He said, I want to know this Jesus Christ. So people of God, we're going to be wronged, we're going to be offended, people are going to lie about us. And yet we've been forgiven much. And so we are called to forgive much. And what if this is what King's Chapel was known for in the community? Okay. Not the beautiful church, not the great teaching, not the great worship, not the solid, stable families, but we became known as the church, the community of people who extend forgiveness.
Let me pray for us as we go to the table. Father, there, there, there's some challenging points from this passage because we know it's wrong to lie. We know it's wrong to be angry, to be bitter, and we practice it each and every day. Lord, I pray that we, this week, would have an encounter with the cross and we would see and experience your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that as we come to the table, as we eat the bread, as we drink the juice, we will be reminded of the price, the cost that you paid so that we could be forgiven and be in a relationship with you. Amen.